Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 117 of History of the Marine Corps, part four of our Guadalcanal and Tulagi series. Continuing from last week, we take a look at the challenges Marines faced with limited supplies and intelligence as they established defensive perimeters around Lunga Point and its airstrip. This episode sets the stage for the Battle of the Teneru, detailing the Marines' defensive tactics, the hurdles they faced, and an in-depth look at the fight. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. More than 16,000 personnel on the island faced shortages of food and essential supplies. They were also cut off from crucial intelligence that would normally have been provided by naval ships and aircraft from Task Group 61. With a relatively small force, Vandergrift focused on the defense of Lunga Point and the airfield. The defense plan was centered on the airstrip which contained the strongest fortifications along the beach to guard against enemy landings. Two regimental subsectors were established and equipped with automatic weapons for shoreline defense. 30 caliber machine guns were strategically positioned to cover the beachfront, while 50 caliber and 37 millimeter guns were aimed at the entry points from the sea. Infantry troops were tasked with protecting the weapons area, and they dug fighting holes, also known as foxholes for you non-marines, across the defense zone to ensure these key positions were secure. Most troops were in reserve within the defensive perimeter, ready to deal with enemy breaches or launch counterattacks. Mortars were positioned behind battalion lines, and the 11th Marines' artillery was located further inland, creating a flexible defense across the perimeter. Setting up this defensive perimeter was challenging. The transports had departed, taking essential items like entrenching tools, sandbags, barbed wire, diesel oil, radio batteries, and other supplies the Marines needed. The defense region was an oval, stretching east to west. The eastern boundary was reinforced by Alligator Creek, creating a challenging natural obstacle. The creek's bank formed the right flank's inland boundary, where machine gun positions were strategically placed. A point of interest here was the sandbar, which could be crossed on foot when the water was low enough. This spot was given extra attention. 
The western flank of the defensive zone didn't have natural barriers. It was in a tight space between the shoreline and the grassy ridges. If you moved inland, the terrain became even more rugged and dense with vegetation, making troop movements extremely difficult. The Marines were unable to form a continuous line in this challenging terrain, so they set up separate, smaller defense zones with outposts to maintain contact with other Marines and increase their security. This layout had its pros and cons. The downside of the smaller defense zones was that they left openings in the perimeter, allowing the possibility of an attack breaking through. However, these positions could delay enemy progress, giving the Marines extra time to react and reducing the attack's impact. To compensate for the weakness, patrols were sent 1,500 yards inland for surveillance and to help minimize the potential for a perimeter breach. Patrolling was the most effective method for intelligence gathering in Guadalcanal. Although observation posts were used, they provided limited helpful information due to the unique terrain features, such as steep ridges and narrow ravines, which severely restricted visibility. Each regiment, including the 11th Marines, were responsible for specific areas beyond the defensive perimeter. Daily patrols varied in size and typically operated between 0700 and 1800 hours. Initially, these patrols exercised excessive caution, but as they became more familiar with the terrain and more comfortable patrolling, their approach became more assertive. The patrols on the west side of the perimeter occasionally encountered enemy units, but the patrols in the southeast often reported no contact, which suggested to leadership that enemy concentration was primarily to the west. The absence of enemy encounters in the southeast enabled the patrols to expand their operations further. From August 9th through the 20th, enemy naval forces dominated the nearby waters. Marines on the island faced frequent low-level bombing attacks that targeted both troops and engineers working on the airfield. Marines responded with anti-aircraft fire, which reduced the effectiveness of these attacks. August 12th brought mixed feelings to Guadalcanal. On one hand, it marked the arrival of the first American aircraft, a PBY flown by Lieutenant Sampson. This aircraft used the recently seized airstrip to evacuate troops. This successful landing and subsequent takeoff with two injured Marines demonstrated the effectiveness of this approach for the duration of the campaign. This milestone showed the U.S. forces' ability to use the recently captured airstrip a strategic asset in the Pacific theater. It also had an enormous boost of morale for American troops. On the other hand, this was the day the ill-fated Getchy Patrol set out on its mission. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Getchy was a Marine Corps intelligence officer during World War II. He had a strong background in intelligence and surveillance, which played a crucial role in his assignment during the Guadalcanal campaign. The patrol was established based on two critical pieces of intelligence. The first was from a captured Japanese naval warrant officer who hinted that some enemy troops to the west might consider surrendering under certain circumstances, and this group was thought to be in the area where the patrol was headed. Second, there was a report of a white flag seen in the same region, 
which was presumed to be a signal of the enemy's desire to surrender. But this information proved to be a deadly trap, and the patrol walked into an ambush by Japanese forces. The plan was to depart from Kukum by boat and arrive near Point Cruz at daybreak. From there, the patrol would advance along the left and set up camp in the hills for the night. The following day, the Marines planned to return to where they started. Gechi believed that non-combatant Japanese might surrender, so he modified the patrol to include a surgeon, Lieutenant Commander Malcolm L. Pratt, and a Japanese linguist, Lieutenant Ralph Corey. This increased the patrol's humanitarian potential, but reduced its combat effectiveness, as the group was now only 25 strong. The patrol left at 1800 and made a nighttime landing four hours later. They landed west of their intended target. Even though the patrol had been cautioned not to land between the river and Point Cruz because of known enemy locations. When the Marines hit the shore, they faced unfamiliar terrain in the dark. They managed to disembark the boat smoothly, but as soon as they moved inland, they walked straight into an ambush with heavy fire from enemy rifles and machine guns, leading to significant casualties. Only three members survived, returning at different times on August 13th. Sergeant Charles C. Arndt was the first to arrive at 5.30 in the morning. He was sent as soon as the Marines encountered Japanese forces, and it took him seven hours to return to camp, where he informed command of the ambush. Corporal Joseph Spaulding arrived at 7.25, and Platoon Sergeant Frank L. Few arrived 35 minutes later, confirming the devastating loss of the patrol. In response to the ambush, a relief patrol from Alpha Company, 5th Marines, was immediately dispatched and mistakenly landed west of Point Cruz. They faced minor resistance near the river and returned the following day without finding any survivors. Lima Company was sent as well. After facing some delays due to the challenging terrain, they returned the following afternoon, failing to locate any patrol members as well. According to official records, and a patrol led by Lieutenant Silverton. No identifiable remains of the patrol were ever found. Some of Commander Pratt's equipment and a piece of clothing marked with Getchy's name were recovered, but the patrol members remained missing in action. On August 19th, the first offensive beyond the perimeter was launched to engage enemy forces west of the river. This decision was influenced by the unfortunate outcome of the patrol. This operation involved a coordinated three-pronged attack by the 2nd, 3rd, and 5th Battalions, supported by 11th Marine Artillery. Bravo Company was tasked with advancing west across the river from its mouth. India Company was tasked with preventing enemy retreat and clearing the village of Kokombona to the west. Lima Company successfully surprised and captured the village of Motnikau after navigating through the problematic inland terrain. Bravo Company faced a challenging situation. They were unable to cross the river because of intense enemy fire, but despite this setback, they played a crucial role by keeping the enemy forces occupied. This distraction was instrumental in allowing Lima Company to launch their inland attack effectively. The coordinated efforts of both companies, 
with Lima Company's inland advance and Bravo Company's engagement at the river, demonstrated tactical proficiency and adaptability in combat. While being transported by boat, India Company encountered fire from enemy destroyers and a cruiser. This threat was neutralized when two B-17 bombers intervened, driving the enemy ships away. Although the company encountered gunfire on the beach and met resistance when they landed, they managed to avoid casualties. The enemy retreated into the hills once the attack commenced. They moved into a ravine, which they felt was a good defensive position. All companies returned to their perimeter after killing over 65 enemy soldiers and a lot more wounded. Marines suffered 4 dead and 11 wounded. The Brush Patrol, led by Captain Brush, was formed to gather intelligence east and southeast of the perimeter. The origin of this patrol had a unique beginning. The first Marines were responsible for patrolling and reconnaissance east and southeast of the perimeter. On August 12th, a group of engineers set out to begin a survey of the area for potential airfield construction. For security, they were accompanied by one platoon from Alpha Company 1st Marines, led by 2nd Lieutenant John J. Yockham. The following day, while passing through a small village, they came across a young Catholic priest, Arthur C. Dumel, who informed the Marines of rumors about an enemy force further east along the coast. Although they couldn't obtain specific details, Lieutenant Yockham returned to the perimeter to report the information, and if necessary, returned with the larger force to investigate further. A partial confirmation of Dumel's information came two days later, when Captain Clemens, a coast watcher and a former British Solomon Island civil government official, he arrived at the command post with Sergeant Major Jacob Vuza and reported the news of an enemy radio station near Taivu. Vuza was a retired sergeant major of the native police force, and he appeared at the mouth of the Tenaru River four days earlier, accompanied by several friends. During his visit, him and his friends taught the Marines how to husk a coconut efficiently, with just three machete strokes. This encounter began a valuable relationship between the Marines and Vuza, proving crucial in the coming days. Admiral Turner informed Vandergriff that the Japanese were planning a major attack on the perimeter. The Marine landing at Guadalcanal disrupted the Japanese strategy to strike Port Moresby in southeastern New Guinea, where Japan had intended to deploy the 17th and 18th armies. But with the Marines establishing a presence on Guadalcanal, the 17th Army was rerouted to engage the Marines there, altering their original plans. The first significant Japanese reinforcement in Guadalcanal included a battalion, bolstered with engineers and artillery, from the 28th Infantry Regiment of the 7th Division, led by Colonel Kiyono Ichiki. Initially intended for Midway, Ichiki's destination changed to Guadalcanal, following the Japanese defeat at Midway. His force landed near Taivu on August 18th. He immediately dispatched a reconnaissance party to explore the area between their landing point and the marine positions. On the 19th, the Brush Patrol, consisting of a portion of Alpha Company 1st Marines, set out towards their target. They followed the road from Lunga to Koli Point, 
Around noon, the patrol reached a small village and stopped for food and to get a break from the heat. They decided to continue down the road to a grove of fruit trees for additional rations. While they were traveling between the two villages, scouts that were ahead of the leading group spotted Ichiki's force of four officers and 30 men traveling west along the road, not in military formation. Captain Brush's patrol launched a frontal attack with one platoon, led by Lieutenant Yakum. They executed an enveloping maneuver around the right flank. In just 55 minutes of action, the patrol wiped out the enemy force, killing 31 Japanese while three escaped into the jungle. The Marine patrol suffered three dead and three wounded. Marines were able to gather significant details after inspecting the dead enemy soldiers. There was a substantial amount of higher rank among the Japanese, and they were in the process of laying communication wire before they were surprised by the Marine patrol. Captain Brush noted that documents discovered with the bodies of Japanese soldiers were quite informative. Quote, With a complete lack of knowledge of Japan on my part, the maps the Japanese had of our positions were so clear they startled me. They showed our weak spots all too clearly. For example, the 1st Battalion 1st Marines had prepared positions on the right of the 2nd Battalion, but they were not occupying these positions. On the right of the 1st Battalion, there was nothing. This fact was clearly shown on the Japanese map, which I inspected on the scene of the patrol action." Unquote. The maps found with the Japanese soldiers were remarkably detailed and clearly showed vulnerable areas of the Marine positions. As Brush stated, the maps indicated that 1-1 had prepared defensive positions on the right of the 2nd Battalion, but those positions were not occupied. This information highlighted potential weaknesses in the Marine defenses, and it also suggested that the Japanese were well informed about their positions. This was a significant discovery during the patrol. These documents also confirm that the enemy group was likely the advance party of a larger force, corroborating Turner's warning about an imminent attack. The successful defense of the island and the denial of it to the enemy depended on the development and use of the airfield. Until the airfield was completed and fighter and dive bomber planes could be brought in, the Marines remained vulnerable to air and naval attacks from the enemy. Without dedicated air support, the island experienced daily raids, as well as attacks from surface craft, submarines, destroyers, and cruisers. The defense against these attacks were limited and not very effective. The anti-aircraft weapons around the airfield could only keep enemy planes at a reasonable high altitude. And enemy bombing was pretty accurate, even from 25,000 feet. There were occasional successes in driving off enemy submarines with 75mm half-tracks. But the lack of supply and equipment was a significant challenge. Construction of the airfield began on August 9th, and it was estimated that the runway could be completed within two days. However, supply shortages, including earth-moving equipment, slowed down the progress. When the transports departed, they left the Marines on Guadalcanal with just a fraction of their original supplies. The most pressing shortage was the lack of specialized machinery to finish the airfield. 
essential equipment like power shovels or dump trucks weren't offloaded, and only one bulldozer belonging to the Pioneer Battalion was available but not readily usable for airstrip construction. Luckily, a lot of the older but still semi-functional Japanese equipment for airfield building was discovered and made serviceable. The CO for the 1st Engineer Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Henry H. Crockett, sent a letter to the Commandant of the Marine Corps long after the war to pay tribute to one bulldozer that was instrumental in construction efforts on Guadalcanal. Quote, One R-4 bulldozer, actually an angle dozer, was landed by the 1st Pioneer Battalion, and the yeoman service performed by this lone piece of power equipment in the hands of one Corporal Cates, its skilled proprietor, no one else was allowed to operate it, seems worthy of a place in the record. Cates drove that dozer from morning till night. He automatically ceased whatever tasks he was performing when Condition Red sounded and headed for the airfield ready to fill bomb craters on the strip. He buried dead Japanese, worked the roads, and prepared bridge bank seats, cleared the beach for unloading operations, pooled, tugged, and towed all manner of things. That lovely R4 finally fell apart like the one Haas Shea never to run again, sometime in late October. Unquote. Engineers worked diligently with their limited equipment as the Marines established their perimeter, and rifle regiments continued probing. The first elements of Marine Corps aviation began their move toward the island. The USS Long Island, carrying Marine Fighter Squadron VMF-223 and Dive Bomber Squadron VMS Bravo-232, was en route to Guadalcanal. However, the Marine Air Group 23 ground echelon was on the USS William Ward Burroughs, scheduled to arrive later. The late arrival of MAG-23 caused another issue. The lack of trained ground crew made operating the fighters and dive bombers impossible. To compensate for the absence of trained ground crew, Admiral McCain ordered Major Hayes to proceed to Guadalcanal with the aviation component of VMO-251 to provide ground facilities for the squadrons. This solution helped ensure that the planes could be operated when they arrived. Major Hayes was directed to expedite the completion of the airfield, mainly focusing on preparing camouflage or concealment for the planes, especially the SBD dive bombers. While troops under Hayes were quickly preparing for Guadalcanal, Hayes himself searched everywhere for chamois, which were essential for straining fuel from drums. The Assault Personnel Destroyers, or APDs, departed as scheduled and arrived off Kukum on the night of August 15th. The cargo was limited to only essentials, and the total supplies carried by the four craft included 400 drums of aviation fuel, 32 drums of aviation lubricant, 282 bombs ranging from 100 to 500 pounds, belted ammunition, and critically essential tools and parts. The Marines on board carried light packs and weapons only. Hayes carried the chamois. By the 19th, despite daily raids by enemy aircraft, the airstrip was completed and ready to receive planes. Within eight hours of their arrival, they repelled the first Japanese counterattack. Within 12 hours, they supported the ground troops in patrolling the beaches, 
when future Brigadier General Richard Mangrum landed his SBD at Guadalcanal, quote, he had his hand run profusely by General Vandergrift, while thousands of thankful Marines shouted themselves hoarse and pounded one another black and blue in a thundering release of emotion, unquote. Following the Marine planes, elements of the 67th Fighter Squadron from the Army Air Force arrived on August 22nd and 27th. The planes that arrived were P-400s, and they had a lot of problems. They couldn't operate at a sufficient altitude, so their support was limited to close support missions. It also seems like they were assembled by my 10-year-old son. The fuel lines were plugged with scotch tape, and pressing the flap switch retracted the main gear, while pressing the gear switch fired the guns. The crew got to work, and 28 days later, in an impressive display of engineering skill and resourcefulness, 41 P-400s had been assembled, with help from the 65th Material Squadron. They built an A-frame structure from coconut tree trunks, and it was used to lift the fuselages to a height where they could be positioned at or above the wings and connected. Captain Dale Brannan test flew each of these aircraft. During their testing, he found that the flight instruments were useless, so pilots learned how to fly without them. Many of the parts for the P-400s came from salvage. One fighter was built from parts of four other aircraft and was appropriately named the Resurrection. After the planes were assembled and deemed ready for flight, the ground crews painted them with shark face designs. This creative inspiration came from photographs of the flying tigers in Burma, featured in the latest issue of Life magazine that had arrived that month. The situation at Guadalcanal had confirmed the presence of enemy forces both to the east and west, making an attack of the perimeter inevitable. General Vandergrift had two possible courses of action. The first was to send a single reserve battalion to confront and defeat the enemy. This option was ultimately rejected due to uncertainty about the enemy's strength and objectives. The second course, which was adopted, involved strengthening all defenses within the perimeter and increasing patrols to locate and understand the enemy's movements. This inevitable confrontation would become the Battle of the Tenaru. The defenses on the east, along the west bank of Alligator Creek, had been extended, but there wasn't enough time to construct permanent fortifications. Four rifle battalions were allocated for beach defense, with an additional battalion kept in reserve, ready to respond to any developments. An intensive patrolling program was launched immediately and was led by Captain Clemens. Marines, along with native scouts, patrolled to the east of the river. Observation posts were set up near the Tenaru River and listening posts were established along the Tenaru and Block 4 rivers. By midnight on August 20th, the 1st Marines were positioned around the right flank of the defensive perimeter. The 2nd Battalion held a crucial position at the mouth of the river, with its right flank extending a few hundred yards upstream. The 3rd Battalion held the beach line to the mouth of the Lunga River, and the 1st Battalion was in reserve, located to the right rear of the 2nd Battalion. Listening posts from the 2nd were established forward of the lines. 
As reports from these forward elements started to come in, they noted that flares had been observed and sounds of movement were heard, but no visual contact had been made with the enemy. But the amount of activity indicated the presence of a potentially large enemy force near the Tenaru River. Around the same time, Sergeant Major Vuza appeared at 2-1's command post. He had been captured by the Japanese on the 18th, but despite being tortured, Vuza had managed to escape through the enemy force and arrived at the mouth of Alligator Creek to inform Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Pollock, the battalion commander. Vuza's story of capture and escape was quite remarkable and heroic. Quote, well, I was caught by the Japanese, and one of the Japanese naval officers questioned me, but I refused to answer, and I was bayoneted by a long sword twice on my chest, through my throat, and cut the side of my tongue. I got up from the enemy and walked through the American front lines. And there, my officer, Mr. Clemens, and his clerk, Staff Sergeant Daniel Poole, both got reports that I was wounded. They came up to the front line and took me to the American hospital at Lunga, Guadalcanal, and the wounds were healed up. Only 12 days I was in the hospital. Unquote. At 3 in the morning, a Marine sentry on the west bank of Alligator Creek detected movement on the opposite side. After the Marine challenged the unknown noise and didn't receive a response, he fired in that direction. Little did that Marine know, Colonel Ichiki, leading the Japanese force, had assembled on the right bank of the river. Ten minutes after the shot fired by the Marine, 200 Japanese soldiers launched a sudden and violent attack, rushing the sandbar. Marines opened up with rifles, machine guns, and 37mm cannons. Despite suffering heavy casualties, some of the Japanese managed to cross the left bank and overrun a few Marine positions. Golf Company from the 1st Marines quickly responded with a counterattack, taking control of the left bank and stopping the enemy's effort to fortify their position. Meanwhile, the main body of the Ichiki unit did not participate directly in the attack. They stayed in the rear, and when the pre-assault's failure became evident, they began firing mortars and infantry cannons to support the remaining Japanese forces. The heavy artillery and mortar fire from the river's right bank indicated a significant presence of enemy forces. In response, General Vandergrift organized an enveloping strategy, directing the 1st Battalion of the 1st Marines, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Leonard Cresswell, to cross the river and advance northwest along the right bank, to outflank and attack the enemy from behind and to their left. This strategy was kicked off at 0400 by 3rd Battalion 11th Marines, who dropped steel rain on enemy positions. An hour and 15 minutes later, a second barrage of artillery fell on Japanese troops. The battalion successfully crossed the river and established a position behind the enemy lines. Alpha and Charlie companies aggressively pushed towards the beach at the enemy's rear. At the same time, Bravo Company and reserve units secured the river's left bank, stopping enemy retreat. Headquarter Company offered rear support during the operation. After successfully crossing the river, Alpha and Charlie companies, reinforced with a weapon company platoon, 
immediately turned left and began advancing towards Alligator Creek. The Japanese made several attempts to break through the Marine encirclement. One of their thrusts towards the east along the beach was stopped by elements of Charlie Company. Another enemy attempt to advance up the right bank of Alligator Creek was met by Delta Company and resulted in the annihilation of the Japanese force. The intense fighting continued for 16 hours. Japan suffered nearly total casualties, with about 900 of their soldiers killed, with only a few stragglers managing to escape into the hills to the south. Fifteen enemy soldiers were taken prisoner. The Marines had 34 dead and 75 wounded during this engagement. While Lieutenant Colonel Pollock's battalion held its position at the river's mouth, and Lieutenant Colonel Cresswell positioned his forces on the enemy's left flank and rear, four pilots from VMF-223, led by Major Smith, intercepted an enemy flight near Savo Island. The Marine pilots shot down one enemy fighter in this engagement. During the events leading up to the Battle of the Tenaru, the Japanese prepared for a second attempt to reinforce their strength on Guadalcanal. On the same day Ichiki's reconnaissance patrol was eliminated, the rear echelon of his force departed from Rabaul for Guadalcanal. This force included about 700 troops and was transported on four old destroyer transports. There were an additional 800 Marines from the 5th Yokosuka Special Landing Force, also en route. The United States had two task forces active southeast of the Lower Solomons, each of them built around an aircraft carrier. The USS Enterprise spearheaded one task force, while the USS Saratoga led the other. The next day, the enemy task force was found and engaged, leading to the sinking of the Ryojo and damage to the Chitose. On the 24th, 16 single-engine carrier-type bombers attacked Henderson. They were escorted by 12 Japanese Zeros. F-4s from MAG-23 engaged the enemy, and they managed to take out 10 bombers and 6 Zeros, while suffering a loss of 3 pilots missing and 1 wounded. The enemy only inflicted minor damage. The Enterprise suffered damage in enemy air attacks and had to withdraw from action. Some of its aircraft sought refuge at Henderson Field. Enemy transports continued their mission, but they were attacked by enemy aircraft, damaging the cruiser Jintsu and the destroyer Mutsuki. The defense from Allied forces on Guadalcanal was so effective that it forced the Japanese to withdraw and abandon their reinforcement effort. 871 soldiers, most of Ichiki's army, was wiped out during this battle. Only 30 survivors escaped to Taivu Point and relayed their experience to their fellow soldiers. Later that night, Colonel Ichiki, in a solemn act, buried his unit's colors and using a ceremonial dagger, took his own life by disembowelment in the soft sand beside Lango Channel. A missionary sat near the perimeter. The survivors of Ichiki's force, led by Ishimoto, the local spy, entered the missionary and ordered the priest and nuns to walk through the American lines with stories of an overpowering Japanese force to get the Marines to surrender or leave the island. The missionaries refused the order. 
The Japanese soldiers tortured and starved them for a week. When they still refused, Father Arthur Dumel, whose information motivated the brush patrol we discussed earlier, and Father Henry Udenbrick, with sisters Sylvia and Odilia, were bayoneted to death and buried in a native hut. Father Frederick P. Gehring, on duty with Cub 1, recovered the bodies and gave them a proper burial. To summarize this episode, the Marines, despite being under-resourced, ingeniously fortified Lunga Point and a key airfield. They established a defense perimeter, with trenches and weapon stations, amongst challenges like supply shortages and rugged terrain. The defense strategy involved patrolling, positioning artillery, and preparing for counterattacks. From the 9th through the 20th, the Marines faced enemy naval dominance and bombing raids. Their defense was complicated by logistical constraints and the necessity to focus on protecting a small section of the island. The Getchi Patrol, a reconnaissance mission that ended in an ambush, caused significant losses. Meanwhile, the Marines worked on constructing the airfield with limited equipment. This was crucial for their defense. Enemy forces, particularly under Colonel Ichiki, posed a constant threat. The Marines conducted various patrols, engaging the enemy in several encounters, which provided insights into enemy positions and plans. The Marines countered enemy reinforcements and attacks with coordinated strategies, including artillery barrages and infantry movements leading to significant enemy casualties. Intelligence from captured documents and encounters revealed detailed enemy knowledge of marine positions. The defense of Guadalcanal depended on the completion of the airfield, which faced challenges due to equipment shortages. The arrival of marine aircraft and reinforcements bolstered the defense, leading to successful engagements with enemy forces and boosting morale. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is Marine. The Life of Chesty Pooler by Burke Davis. The title alone should be reason enough to get this book. This is a full biography of Lieutenant General Louis B. Chesty Pooler, a legendary figure in the U.S. Marine Corps. Davis presents a detailed look at Pooler's life, from his early years to his distinguished military career. This book highlights key moments in Pooler's 37 years of service, which covers some of the most significant military campaigns of the 20th century, including battles in Haiti, Nicaragua, the Pacific Theater of World War II, and the Korean War. I enjoyed this book because it's not just a record of Pooler's military career, but also a portrayal of his personal life, revealing a man devoted to his family and the Marine Corps. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying this podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.